0: In uh, yesterday's lecture, most of you I think were here and will remember, um, I um, discussed one modern approach to historiography, um, that of history from below, um, and and I I think found that um, approach uh, illuminating with regard to aspects of the Gospels uh, that are actually very different from uh, the general run of historiography in the ancient world. Um, what I want to do in this lecture is to take up two um, further uh, a, a modern approaches to history, um, which are microhistory, and then uh, what I call the challenge of postmodernism to objectivity in history. But in order to appreciate these approaches, and especially the postmodern one, I think we need to. Um, have some idea of what has happened in the modern historical tradition generally um, since the 19th century. Uh, Necessarily, this will have to be rather brief and schematic. But I'm going to do this survey of modern debate in historiography um, in two parts. Between the two parts, I will place uh, my discussion of microhistory, Gospels as microhistory, and then... Um, at the end of the lecture, uh, all too briefly, I'm afraid, but I'm quite constrained here by by time and space, um, uh, a discussion of postmodern developments, postmodernist developments in thinking about history. So, first of all, development and debate in modern historiography, part one. A useful way, I I think, to think of um, the history of this subject in the modern period, is to make a distinction between historiography, what historians do, and philosophy of history, meaning ideas about the nature of history and of historiography. These two are closely related, of course, um, and, and influence each other, but not always to the same extent. Now, the modernist paradigm of historiography goes back to the beginning of the 19th century and the so-called historical revolution of the early 19th century. The modernist paradigm of historiography has two sides to it. One of these was a view of proper subject matter of history. And we find here a a remarkable continuity, really, with the general run of ancient historiography um, in that the proper subject matter of history in the standard modernist paradigm of the 19th century is political history from above. And this was regarded as the proper subject because to the early 19th century pioneers of the modern paradigm, especially the famous Leopold von Ranke, the nation-state seemed to be the dominant reality of the historical process. So a rather different reason from those of ancient historians um, for regarding real history as political history from above. But the other side of the modernist paradigm that we need to notice was the epistemological one in that modernist history shared with the Enlightenment in general an optimistic epistemological realism. Uh, these historians thought by using a rigorous methodology, and they were very keen to speak of historical method as a kind of science parallel to the natural sciences, using a rigorous methodology, historians would be able to discover and describe the objective truth of history, what actually happened back there and then. This epistemological aspect of the modernist paradigm, I shall now leave aside until the second part of my story and and discuss other developments now. Now, the first development from the definition of history as political history from above was the social science history that developed in the 20th century. Methodologically, this was a further step in the attempt to make history a science like the natural sciences. The quantitative and analytical methods of economics and sociology were to enable the historian to discover the determinative forces in the complex historical process. The great men who directed history according to the 19th century view were replaced by the impersonal forces of economic and social trends. Thus, the subject matter of history extended from the political to encompass society, but society studied, as it were, en masse. We already know about the next development, which was history from below, uh, which sought to restore agency in history to ordinary people. Not just the ruling elite, and not just the impersonal forces either, but the the common people themselves, of course within the constraints of the particular circumstances of their historical context played a a part in making their own history. So in effect, the scope of history at this point extends again from politics and society to popular culture. Part of the same kind of development was women's history, similarly beginning in the 1960s, and the various histories of different minority groups restored to visibility and agency in history. And microhistory, to which we shall turn shortly, is an approach quite congruent with these other kinds of history from below. Alongside these developments in historiography runs the history of ideas about history. And here I need to introduce the great modern meta-narratives that dominated all of Western culture from the Enlightenment to at least the mid-20th century and still have a lot of influence. In one way or another, the meta-narratives offered a grand interpretation of the whole course of history as a coherent development towards a foreseeable goal. At least the history of the modern age can be seen to be moving in a clear direction. History is assumed to be one thing. History with a capital H, we might call it, with a coherent development that can be plotted and understood and explained. These ideas about history are sometimes called historicism. In one way or another, even in their Marxist forms, these progressivist metanarratives assumed that modern Western society is in the vanguard of the whole of history on the way to some kind of rational utopia. Although strictly mythical, the meta-narratives were rational in the sense that they believed in the scientific observation of laws of history that could be uh, understood analogous to the laws of Darwinian evolution that offered so attractive an analogy from one of the natural sciences. Economic and sociological approaches to history as they developed in the 20th century still fell broadly within this progressivist outlook. Assuming that they were plotting the movement of history in a definite, observable direction. And so did uh, history from below. E.P. Thompson, George Ruday and the others uh, were inspired by the Marxist version of the modern meta-narrative, even though they adapted it in a quite uh, significantly revisionist way. For them, the middle class uh, for, sorry for them, the working class were the agents of historical progress. However, the growing incredulity and disillusionment with which metanarratives began to be perceived from the period of Nazism, the Holocaust, Stalinism and all the other horrors of 20th century history eventually had far-reaching effects on intellectual history. The idea of a single process, a single historical process moving in some intelligible way towards a definite and single goal came to be seen as illusory. History fragmented and the intelligibility of history, the idea that there's a process whose laws we can discover and follow, along with the idea that we are able, through rational understanding of the process, to control and further it, became suspect. This So-called incredulity towards metanarratives is usually credited to the postmodern philosophers, but it's worth noting that others, such as Karl Popper, who I shall mention again in the lecture, anticipated it. Postmodernism takes the critique further by seeing the modern metanarrative not only in its totalitarian forms, which Popper attacked, um, but in its liberal progressive forms also as an ideology of oppression, legitimizing the West's exploitation of the rest of the world. At this point, I want to turn to microhistory and look in some detail at the way this might illuminate the Gospels. The best known examples of microhistory are two studies in European History written in the mid 70s. Emmanuel Loir Ladurie's book Montaillou, Catholics and Cathars in a French village, 1294 to 1324, first published in 1975, and Carlo Ginzburg's The Cheese and the Worms, Cosmos of a 16th Century Miller, first published in 1976. Both of these books, but especially the latter, proved very popular with ordinary readers. Both both authors exploited rather unusual cases in which the views of ordinary people of the medieval and early modern periods are accessible at some length and in something close to their original words. These sources are inquisition registers that record quite meticulously the words of defendants and witnesses. So they put the historian in something approaching the position of the oral historian in ability to access the experience, ideas, beliefs of the common people, their mental world, as it were. Uh, in the case of Montaigneux, uh, a large number of peasants living in a small area in southern France in the early 14th century are the subject, while the cheese and the worms focuses on the idiosyncratic ideas of just one individual, a miller in a village in northeastern Italy who was interviewed at length by the Inquisition in the late 16th century. The book incidentally takes its title from this miller's extraordinary picture of the origins of the world. He compared it with the familiar peasant experience of cheese making. The earth was formed when the pre-existent ocean curdled like milk to form cheese, a kind of spontaneous generation of life from inanimate matter. Well, the author of The Cheese and the Worms, Italian historian Carlo Ginzburg, is the best known of a group of Italian historians who in the 1970s and 80s evolved an historiographical movement they called microhistory and some other historians outside Italy were moving in the same direction. Microhistory is a reduction of scale, narrowing the historian's focus to a specific small social group. But this reduction of scale is not meant simply to make it possible to observe the same things at micro level that one can perceive at macro level. The micro-studies are not to be mere case histories illustrating what macro-history already uh, claims to know. The rationale for micro-history is that at the micro-level, one will see different things. Another of the Italian micro-historians, Giovanni Levi, says, quote, the unifying principle of all, historic, all micro-historical research is the belief that microscopic observation will reveal factors previously unobserved. Phenomena previously considered to be sufficiently described and understood assume completely new meanings by altering the scale of observation. So the microhistorical studies are not examples for macro-history, but experiments in search of what can only be seen at the micro-level. In particular, what, from the macro-historical perspective, is anomalous and discontinuous. Almost a patron saint of the Italian microhistorians is Sherlock Holmes because his technique consisted in observing trifles that could turn out to be important. Never trust general impressions, my boy, he said to uh, Watson, but concentrate yourself upon the details. The microhistorians also have a kind of motto that is rather suggestive for our own enterprise of understanding the Gospels as history. It's a saying of the novelist Gustave Flaubert God is in the detail. This is surely a theologically preferable saying to its variant in English, the devil is in the detail. Microhistory can be applied to the elite. But much more frequently, it's applied to the ordinary people of history. And this has been Ginsburg's prime concern. Edwin Muir, in introducing a volume of essays in microhistory, instances examples of the little people usually ignored by history, but appearing in these essays. Uh, He has a list that goes like this a charlatan distiller, the anonymous pillagers of ecclesiastical property an accused witch, peasants who had disturbing visions, two Jews who destroyed Christian images on their houses, and unwed mothers who sought aid in urban hospitals. I cite that list because, allowing for the differences of historical period, it rather resembles my lists of the ordinary and poor people who who appear in the Gospels. The interest in ordinary people of course, Marx's microhistory's continuity with history from below, as does a further point that the microhistorians aim to restore the agency of ordinary people in making in the making of their history. The social creativity of the so-called inarticulate, uh, one of these historians calls it. The agency of ordinary people, along with the contextual constraints on their activity, focuses not merely on the individual, but on the social interaction of relatively small groups. And it's this level of small social groups where, according to these historians, most of history actually happens. Microhistory, they say, centers on the search for a more realistic description of human behavior in the world which recognizes humanity's relative freedom beyond though not outside the constraints of prescriptive and oppressive normative systems and notice there's a kind of anthropology or philosophy of human existence going on here which protests the importance of human freedom against the more deterministic uh, approaches of um, uh, social science history there are two aspects of the microhistorians um, resistance to the idea that it's the impersonal forces of history that are really in control one is the disillusionment with the great meta-narratives of the modern age, the progressivisms which understood progress of some kind whether gradual or revolutionary, to be assured by laws of history that the historian could understand. More specifically, microhistory was a reaction against historiography, such as the kind of social history that employed quantitative and sociological methods um, and appealed to deterministic structures of history. The microhistorians sought to recover the loss incurred by methods that that look only for the homogeneous and the comparable. They chose to leave aside the numbers and abstractions and so get closer to real life. The reduction of style, the reduction of scale, they claim, permits in many cases a reconstitution of real life, unthinkable in other kinds of historiography. It seems to me a question whether this closeness to real life that microhistory pursues can actually convey the lived experience um, of everyday life at the micro level to modern readers. Um, another, of the, uh, these historians, another of these historians also claims that by focusing on the concrete and particular microhistorical approaches um, they often successfully evoke a vivid sense of lived human experience. Now, this is undoubtedly part of their appeal to a wide reading public. In some ways, this group of historians has, as it were, restored history to the bookshelves uh, or the book, yes, the bookshelves of the bookstores um, where uh, a lot of people look for simply interesting reading. As an aside at this point, I think we might say, of the, the little stories in the Gospels, that they also convey a sense of lived human experience. They give just enough detail, I think, to evoke a sense of the lived experience of people who interacted with Jesus. On the other hand, the philosopher Paul recur who is generally favorable to microhistory, insists, quote, what we do not see and must not expect to see is the lived experience of the protagonists, what we see are social interactions. This insistence comes from recurs fundamental distinction between history and memory. What characterizes personal memory is precisely the experience of reliving lived experience whereas history is representation, the historian's construction on the basis of the evidence. Yet there may be a middle way when the historian's sources consist of participants' memories of lived experience at first hand or even mediated fairly directly. In such cases of transmitted memory, readers can come imaginatively closer to the lived experience of past people than otherwise. And you'll recognize there one of my interests in in, uh, understanding the Gospels as uh, eyewitness memory. Another aspect of this focus by micro-historians on human agency in its immediate social context is to downplay the uniformities and continuities of history in favor of the anomalous and the discontinued discontinuous. While a macro-historical approach will choose particular examples on grounds of their typicality or their tendency to be repeated, microhistory, according to Ginsberg has confronted the question of comparison with a different and in a certain sense opposite approach through the anomalous rather than the analogous. It regards the occurrence of unusual, unexpected, anomalous material in the sources as more promising for historical reflection. And it problematizes the relationship between the results of historical study at the macro and micro levels. Well, when I look along the shelves in the history sections of bookstores nowadays, it seems to me as though everyone is now doing microhistory. People who otherwise do rather traditional macrohistory of various kinds are also writing small-scale studies of places, local events, and persons who are of macrohistorical insignificance. Um, So I think the influence of this school of microhistory has been rather uh, considerable. And most people who do microhistory nowadays don't seem to me to refer to uh, the movement of microhistory or the uh, historians who got the thing going. They simply take it for granted, I think, as an aspect of historical work. The weakness, I think, is that by, by not um, reflecting on microhistory as a methodological um, issue, um, they really don't grapple with the relationship between their micro studies and their macro studies they just do the two things um, and I think there's a lot of reflection to be done on how the two things go together so now let's come to the issue of the gospels as micro history um, remember that um, the, uh, the ancients distinguished biography from history and the way that they distinguished biography from history was partly in terms of a difference of scale. Biography is written on a smaller scale than the big events of macro history. Biography is written on a smaller scale and therefore matters therefore notices matters that are not important on the macro scale of history. And this is what (coughs) Plutarch says um, in some introductions to his biographies. Um, uh, Here's a quote. For it's not histories that I'm writing, but lives. And in the most illustrious deeds, there is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice, nay, a slight thing like a phrase or a jest, often makes greater revelation of character than battles where thousands fall or the greatest armaments or sieges of cities. Accordingly, just as painters get the likenesses in their portraits from the face and the expression of the eyes, but make very little account of the other parts of the body, so I must be permitted to devote myself rather to the signs of the soul in men, leaving to others the description of their great contests." Now, the rationale here for the usefulness of biography is is really that um, the small-scale anecdotes and and so forth uh, about a particular figure um, reveal character and thereby um, teach by example. For Plutarch, biography is history teaching by examples. This was a widespread view at the time, And anecdotes about famous or wise men were very popular um, in the period for that reason. And anecdotes, of course, are a kind of microhistory. Note that the Synoptic Gospels contain many anecdotes. Um, They're almost uh, the substance of the Synoptic Gospels, which uh, group anecdotes together and fit them into a wider narrative. Uh, but the anecdotes themselves are clearly uh, very similar to the kind of biographical uh, detail uh, that Plutarch envisages. Um, What we are told in the Gospels is not, in my view, primarily, however, to make Jesus an example for emulation, that there is uh, an element of that giving by example um, in the Gospels, Um, But the the anecdotes, the the little stories, do seem to me to be indispensable to the Gospel's portrayal of Jesus and his activity. The stories of the Syrophoenician woman or the Gerizine demoniac, for example, are not just illustrations of something that could be said in general terms about Jesus uh, in, for example, the Gospel summaries. The particularity of each story, with their own puzzling or provocative features, contribute, I think, uniquely and irreplaceably to the understanding of Jesus and his activity. We need the micro-history. God is in the detail. Now, the um, reduction in scale that Plutarch adopted in his biographies did not, of course, involve any movement down the social scale, um, but we now know from yesterday's lecture that the Gospels very much do so. And the Gospels are made up to quite a large extent of little stories about little people whose lives, but for their connection with Jesus, would never have been noticed. In this sense, from the perspective of macro-history of the time, the Gospels bring to light anomalies that challenge the dominant meta-narrative of the Greco-Roman historians. Just as modern micro-history keeps its distance from the dominant historical syntheses at the macro level, attending with care to the small scale, not in order to confirm the macro-historical accounts but to understand the real life that they ignore, so the Gospels work from below and show, in fact, that this is where history is really being made among the common people in ways that the dominant meta-narrative cannot recognize or assimilate like microhistory the gospel stories are often sharply discontinuous disrupting the continuities of history they're full of a sense of the astonishingly novel the puzzling and the provocative now of course as we know the gospels set their microhistory within a meta-narrative of their own or rather the biblical meta-narrative of the hebrew bible But before considering that meta-narrative, it's well worth noticing that the little stories in the Gospels, at least in the synoptics, retain, as it were, their micro-historical integrity, despite the framework of meta-narrative in which the Gospels place them. For example, as Gerd Tyson has pointed out, although the Gospels, including sayings of Jesus, interpret Jesus' healings and exorcisms as signs of the coming of the kingdom, this interpretation is scarcely visible in the way the Gospels actually tell the stories themselves. It's as though they reflect the immediate impact the events had on those who were there, but nothing more. And perhaps even more remarkable are the stories of the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances. Apart from Matthew's apocalyptic earthquake There's nothing to indicate the uniquely eschatological significance of these events. None of the early Christian theology of resurrection, such as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, it's as though the stories of the empty tomb confine themselves to what the women saw and understood at the time. Skillfully crafted though they are, the stories retain their character as pure microhistory, betraying hardly anything, of the macro-historical or meta-narratival significance that is given them only by the broader gospel narratives within which they are placed. They have certainly not been generated by the meta-narratives. Rather, they're allowed to speak for themselves in their own particular way that is not replaced but encompassed by the meta-narrative that develops their universal significance. The peculiarity of the Gospels, from this point of view, I think, is that their micro-historical character is fully consonant with the larger meta-narrative of which they form the historical climax. Or, to put it the other way around, the climax to this meta-narrative, to the story in which the God of Israel is on the way uh, with his people to the fulfillment of his purpose for the whole world, is entirely appropriately this microhistory from below that we find in the Gospels. It's the way of the God who made a bunch of slaves his special people, and acts always in the particular for the sake of the rest, and with the lowly people for the sake of all. This God's purpose takes effect at the grassroots of history, where he works with people of all kinds, however unimportant in macro-historical perspective. Down to the outcasts and the eradicated in the little events that make their history. The microhistorical people and particulars of the little stories of the Gospels have universal potential. They're representative of all who will encounter God in Jesus. In a sense, they are the meta-narrative. They are the mustard seed, proverbially smaller than all the seeds of the earth, that at the consummation of history will appear as the cosmic tree whose branches have room for all the birds of the air to nest in them. These Gospel stories are a micro-historical counter-narrative to all the meta-narratives of power, including the one contemporary with the Gospels, the Roman one. The historiographical embodiment of the Roman meta narrative goes back to Polybius, um, whose great work in 40 books, only five of them have survived complete, unfortunately. Um, he told the story of Rome's rise to dominate the Mediterranean world up to 146 BC. Polybius considered it the first properly universal history, because only from the date at which his narrative properly began, 220 BC, did history become, um, did the, sorry, only from the date at which his narrative began uh, did the political affairs of all the nations begin to be interwoven in a movement towards a single goal? He was thus able to claim that his subject was a single unified one and that his own history accurately mirrored the events for just, uh, for just as Rome subsumed. Individual nations into its empire, so Polybius's history subsumed all other forms of history into his narrative. And Polybius disdains any history less universal than his own. So, universal history, the sort of history that integrates everything into an intelligible whole in the ancient world as well as in the modern is, of course, history from above, the story of the military and political power of the ruling elites who dominate the whole of history. So Polybius and so the 19th century writers. I'm reminded of the philosopher Karl Popper's savage critique of modern grand narratives that claim to understand the laws and patterns of history, and integrate everything into a universal process, moving towards a unified goal. One of Popper's complaints was that such meta-narratives exalt the history of political power, which is one form of history, one aspect of human life, to the status of world history. Political history subsumes all other history, as though all people were to find their goals fulfilled in political power. In reality, and for this statement you need to know that he's writing in 1945, in reality, Popper says, the history of power politics is nothing but the history of international crime and mass murder. Popper also rejects any kind of theistic concept of the meaning and goal of human history. He writes, to maintain that God reveals himself in what we commonly call history, Is indeed blasphemy. If history were were to concern itself with the forgotten, the unknown, the lone individual, his sorrow, his suffering, his death, for that is the true experience of people through the ages, then I would certainly not wish to claim that it's blasphemy to see the finger of God in it. Exactly, God is not in the power politics of Roman domination in which Polybius saw the hand of fate unifying history, but in the Gospel's micro-history from below, among the forgotten and the unknown, and present in the suffering and death of the abandoned Jesus. It's a story that resists integration into the history of power politics, but it has its own kind of universality and its own kind of power in history. Now let me return to my survey of modern historiography, the development of it, and here we come to the challenge of postmodernism, which is the rest of my lecture. With postmodernism, its relativism and subjectivism, we come to an intellectual approach that poses the most radical question that could ever be put to the practice of history. In what sense do we really know anything about the past? Do historians recover the past or construct it? Can we really distinguish historiography from historical fiction? It's perhaps not surprising that many, probably most, historians have resisted the influence of postmodernism in their field of study. And I think it is true that were one to go with the extreme form of postmodern epistemology um, which is really that only texts exist and do not refer to objective reality uh, then i I think that would be the death of history as as a study and uh, as a way of writing There there would be no difference between history and historical fiction but i think we need to consider the postmodern challenge Um, uh, a little more closely what is happening when historians construct narratives about the past which after all they have never stopped doing few historians can have seriously supposed that their narratives reproduced what happened in some sort of photographic way Narratives, historical narratives, are representations of what happened in the past and not, as it were, some uh, photographic transcript of what happened in the past. In philosopher Paul Ricoeur's terms, they stand for the past. But traditional historians do suppose that their narratives are constructed from and constrained by the evidence and therefore correspond to the past in ways that can be debated refuted and confirmed historical narrative differs from fictional narrative in this reference to the past and especially I think in its accountability to the evidence which doesn't bother the the writer of historical fiction The postmodern treatment of historical narrativization, for which Hayden White's work is best known and influential dissolves this distinction between historical and other narratives. Historians employ the same narrative forms and structures as fictional writers do. White points out and construct narratives for rhetorical purposes as others do. The crucial point here is the contention that narrative is a textual imposition on reality. After all, says White, no one lives a story. In reality, if postmodernist epistemology permits anything to be said about reality, the past is not a narrative. By creating a narrative, the historian invents the past. Um, And that's, I think, the postmodern contention that we need to take seriously and to think about. It's it's an assertion that historical narratives are really the same kind of thing as historical fiction because they're using the same kind of literary uh, forms and uh, have the same kind of rhetorical purposes to persuade people of something or other. To engage with postmodernist epistemology as a whole is a task well beyond the scope of these lectures Um, but what I should like to do finally in the remaining minutes of of this lecture is to make four claims about historiography um, which I envisage as Responding to um, the uh, central uh, postmodern attack on traditional um, uh, history. And my long term thinking is that historiography does need to emerge from its engagement with postmodernism chastened and more theoretically self-aware. There really are things to be learned from the postmodern challenge, uh, even if, like the vast majority of historians, we cannot possibly go all the way with them, or we would be just committing historiographical suicide. So, here are my four points. First, history is different from fiction. Um, I'm very fond of Paul Ricoeur's, um, last major work, which was published in two thousand four, and it's a philosophical study of historiography. It's a study that recur had long intended to complement his influential study of fictional narrative, time and narrative. Time and narrative is much better known. I think it was published a good deal, uh, good, good, good way back in the past. It's a much better known book than his. Um, Later, his last great work, which was called Memory, History, and Forgetting. But the two works um, should be put together um, according to recur's insistence that historiography is actually distinct from fiction. So his treatment of fiction in time and narrative, which a lot of biblical scholars have used for their study of the Gospels and with a certain tendency to think that The Gospels are fiction in the same way that the um, works of fiction Recur is analysing in time and narrative are. Um, But Recur himself insists that historiography is distinctive in its intentionality to refer to historical reality. This is what makes it historiography. It's written with the intention of referring to past reality. Um, I would perhaps add that it's done with a sense of responsibility to the evidence uh, that survives from the past so history is different from fiction secondly human experience does have an irreducibly sequential and therefore narrative form contrary to Hayden White there is a sense in which we do live stories we experience events by narrativizing our own experience And we do that not merely subsequently, but in the very course of experiencing, we are um, telling ourselves a story about what is happening. So when we tell stories about what has happened, we are not simply imposing narrative form on reality, even though we are creating the story we tell. It would seem to me that we are closest to the narrative form of lived experience in microhistory. Macro-historical narrativizations, though in some sense they are indispensable, are more in the nature of constructions of the historical imagination informed by the evidence. I think one of the interesting things about microhistory is that it does actually bring us closer to the narrative form of ordinary human experience. Thirdly, history is not fiction, but it is a literary representation of the past. It is a literary representation of the past. As such, it is hardly surprising that it often emplots its narrative in forms it shares with imaginative literature. Even in informal oral communication, telling each other stories about what has happened, we employ narrative conventions, just as we use conventions in other forms of communication. I've already mentioned the Anecdote, which was beloved of the ancients as a micro-historical literary form and features largely in the Synoptic Gospels. The Anecdote offered a fairly flexible form for reporting, for example, someone's clever saying in response to a question or situation. It structures and doubtless simplifies reality, but it also communicates history. Literary representation of the past employs literary forms such as those we can identify in the Gospels, and often has rhetorical ends. Um, Of course, the Gospels also have, in addition to the intentionality of making factual reference to the past. All that's important, but it doesn't, I think, negate the character of history as literary representation of the past. And my final point, which I wish I had time to develop further, and hopefully will in the book that will come out of these lectures. The fourth point is history is perspectival. And here, I think, is where we can perhaps most profit from considering the postmodern challenge. History is perspectival. We cannot take a God's eye view of history or, as someone has described it, the view from nowhere. We ourselves are situated in the here and now. And so it is from somewhere in particular that we view the past. We are situated subjects and can view history only from a particular perspective in our present. Now, this is not a renunciation of objectivity, for our perspectives are perspectives on something. Historical work is a constant attempt to represent the past in ways that best accord with the evidence. Nonetheless, for reasons to do with the complexity and otherness of history, its resistance to anything like total comprehension, as well as the constraints and opportunities of the present contexts in which we do history, all history is perspectival. We construct interpretative representations of history which can tell, at best, only part of the story. Since that is the case, we shall surely come closest to the past reality of events if we take account and advantage of a plurality of perspectives, including those of the witnesses on whom we depend for their first-hand reports. So a final way in which the Gospels come close to some recent approaches to historiography is in their plurality, in the multiplicity of perspectives, in the multivocality of the canon of the four Gospels. If we take the idea of perspectival history seriously then the fact that we have four different Gospels need not be an embarrassment as it has sometimes been for Christians in the past but a genuine advantage. We know Jesus better for being able to adopt as it were these four different perspectives on Jesus that derived from the testimony of those who knew him best. Thank you.